uh, I finally decided to try to give the talk in English, so <laughs> please, I apologize for all the mistakes I'm going to make. Uh, I want to thank the organizer, of course. It's not that often that we have the opportunity to do science in the, in the old uh, historical uh, nice center of Paris. Some of us will uh, soon be standing uh, in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> so it's <laughs> nice for us. Uh, so I have to admit that uh, I've been quite impressed by the title of the, of the workshop, and especially by the title of this session, because as uh, Peter was saying, we are supposed to say things about the future of statistics and the new problem, etc. So I'm not sure I'm able to do that. I just tried to, uh, to identify, let's say, one problem that we often uh, face uh, in statistical inference. Okay, so, uh, so the, 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 let's say, a bit general idea I'd like to, to defend today is the following. In many uh, problems of statistical inference, we have to uh, deal with some combinatorial issues. Uh, means that in, at some point of the optimization problem or something like that, we have to explore a huge set of possible solutions. And in many situations, we can't do it just because the set is too large. So, uh, especially when the data are large, so, well, then you turn to another solution, uh, some approximation, asymptotic, stochastic, etc. And the thing I'd like to show on two examples today is that sometimes you can still do the job at the price of some uh, further uh, development that are not always that difficult, but just that deserve to be done. Uh, this, so, I'm going to speak about two problems. The first is about, both are uh, coming from, let's say, bioinformatics or statistical analysis of biomolecular data. So the first is about multiple testing and histogram selection. And the second one is about uh, breakpoint detection and chromosomal aberration. So it's a joint work with two students have been lucky enough to work with. The first one is Alain Celis, who is there today. Second one is Guillaume Rigaille. And the second point is also a collaboration with Emilie Le Barbier. Uh, okay, let's do that. So, for the first example, I'm going to start with a very old and classical statistical problem, which is the, the estimation of density. So you have a IID sample of a given density unknown, and you want to estimate it. And I just considered two of the most uh, popular density estimates. So, so the kernel estimate. So you take a certain given kernel with a certain shape and a certain bandwidth. And you have this uh, very famous uh, shape of the estimate. And the other one is the histogram estimate, where you just choose a, a partition of the interval. Let's say that the density is only on 0, 1. And then you just uh, split the interval in, in bins. And you have an estimate based on, based on the frequency of the number of data into each bin. So it's very classical and a very among the possible way to, to assess the quality of the estimate. In the literature, you will often meet people uh, using the quadratic loss, which is basically the L2 norm of the difference between the estimate and uh, the true density. And wh what you would like to do is typically to find the density, the estimate that minimizes this quantity. So it, actually, you don't need to calculate all this, because here you have the norm of the true density, which is a constant, so you can't remove it from the criteria. And basically, you would like to minimize that, or at least to be able to see whether your favorite estimate is going to do the, is good or not. And a very standard, uh, 
at least natural way to try to estimate this quantity, which is an expectation under the distribution that you don't know, is to use a cross-validation, or more specifically here, leave P out, which means that you consider all the possible subset, subset of P elements among M. M is the number of data for this part. And for each subset of P element among M, you're going to fit your estimate on the M minus P first data, and then calculate the, your criterion on the P remaining ones. And then you're going to do, you're going to average that over all possible P subsets, uh, subsets of size P. So as you see here, there are P, choose M P possible subsets, and as long as, as soon as M is a bit too large or M is a bit too large, it's a big problem to do that. So in practice, as soon as you have a large M, and as soon as P is a bit large, of course if P equal one, you just have M subset, so it's not too large, but if P equal two, you have a quadratic number, et cetera, and it grows exponentially with P. So it, you can't do that. In many situations, you can't do that. And most of the time, people use V-fold. It means that in in split, instead of uh, taking uh, all possible subset of size P, they just split the, the whole sample into V groups, each of size P, and then uh, do the same job. So the first result uh, I wanted to mention uh, today is the following one. In the specific case of the histogram, and it's the same uh, for the kernel estimate, you can actually exactly compute this formula here, which is the average of all possible uh, subset of size P, just by hand. It's a matter of, I don't know, patience, courage, or you may ask to Alain. <laughs> He has an opinion about that. So you can calculate for the, the exact formula. And you see that the formula is just the sum of a, the number of bins here. So the, the complexity of this formula is very, very small. So for a given, given histogram, you can compute the estimation of its LP, of its risk based on the uh, LP out criteria approximation with this formula. And because this formula is not too complex once you get it, you can do a bit more things. You can also calculate the bias of this estimate, and you can also calculate the variance of this estimate. So now you have at hand things that you usually don't have. I mean, in, in most of the time, you don't even have the estimate. Now you have the estimate, but in, in addition, you have its expectation and its variance. So of course, you can't directly calculate that because it depends on the probability mass within each bin of your histogram, but it's quite, uh, maybe quite natural to use the, the estimation based on the data, so just the frequency of the number of data within each bin. And actually, the variation of this quantity around the true probability are not that large. You can control them. So it's not, you can prove that these two estimates, uh, the, the plug-in version of these two, uh, the, the first two moments, are, are really accurate, and you can control the variations. So what can you do with that? The first thing you can do is try to see what you risk when you do v-fold in pl place of LP out. So uh, I re remember that uh, v-fold is a standard way to, to do when you would like to do LP out, but you can't, just because it's too expensive. So this plot here is just to, uh, to show a curve. It's an example of a, of a, for a kernel estimate where the problem is just to choose the bandwidth. And the black curve here is the risk estimated with LP out. L uh, uh, risk estimate. And here we just plotted uh, the curve with a 
two times the, the standard deviation of the of the v fold. So first, I should precise that when you compare the, the two the two estimates of the risk, you can you can show that they're both unbiased, so that the, their expectation both expectations are equal to the true risk. But because of some additional randomness in the v-fold, the variance of the v-fold is much, much larger. And the randomness comes from the fact that you first have to choose your v-sets at random. You split your uh, sample into v-group, and this is random, and this adds some randomness. And the, here, you, what you, the, the width around the, the black curve here is due to is just twice the standard deviation of the v-fold around the, the risk estimated by LP out. So you see that the band may be quite large, and the most important thing maybe is that depending on the, the V subset that you've been chosen, you won't find the minimum at the same place. In this situation, you get 0.1 with the LP out, and here you go down to 0.08, or here almost to 0.11, just because you were unlucky in this choice of the V set, V subset. So it just to illustrate the kind of thing you can, uh, you can conclude once you, you get the, the exact formula. The other thing you can do now, because you have the, the expectation, the variance, you can compute a kind of global criterion which say, tells you if your estimate, your LP out estimate is accurate or not. And if you remember a bit the formula I just showed you before, they, both, they all depend on P. So you could decide to choose your P so that your LP out estimate is going to be the more precise. So you end up with a rational fraction, so you can solve the equation and trying to find the, the p which minimizes this thing. So you can, do in a, you can do that and decide to choose the histogram, for example. For each histogram, you find the best p. Once you get the p, you estimate the risk of your histogram with your p hat, and then you decide among all your histogram collection which one, uh, which one you prefer. It turns out, and it was a bit disappointing, disappointing, but it's still information that, sorry, in, a, in, in the most simple situation when you just choose the width of the kernel estimate, of the kernel, for example, or when you consider only a regular histogram, most of the time, p hat is one, which means that uh, leave one out is okay, so you can still do your favorite techniques. It works as well. So now, as I was mentioning before, actually, uh, most of the things we are doing are motivated by a biomolecular application. So the way we entered into this problem was the following. It was about gene expression data. And so gene expression data are quite popular even in the statistical world now. And the idea is that you have a bunch of technologies, microarrays, sage, next generation sequencing. And you have probably one new technology every, every two years or something like that. But basically what you get is a measure of the expression level, let's say, of the activity of a gene uh, in, a, in a given condition. And you can do that at the same time for all the genes of a given species. And typically, for the species you, you can work with, you have 1,000 to 10,000 genes or few tens of thousands of genes. One, among the most uh, typical experiments you will uh, you will encounter there is differential analysis. You have two conditions, normal versus tumor, stress versus no stress, healed versus healthy, etc. And you want to find the gene for which the expression level differs between the two conditions. So you can do your favorite test. And of course, in the end, you have a strong multiple testing problem because you want to control the number of false positives, so you can do a naive test procedure. 
So just to remind, uh, there is of course a huge literature about multiple testing procedure, but I just want to recall a few of them. So these are typically two kinds of risks people would like to control, to control the family-wise error rate or the false discovery rate. And among family-wise error rate, you have very also all the procedure, CDAC, home, Bonferroni, etc. a lot of. And here's a Benjamin Hochberg is the following also. So you have a multiple testing procedure which tells you when to decide that a test is significant or not, and it depends on the risk you want for the global criterion. And, and that's the important thing, here it depends on M0. And M0 is the number of true null hypotheses among the hypotheses you are testing. Most of the time, of course, you don't know M0. And most of the time, what you do is that you replace M0 by M, meaning that you assume that all the hypotheses are actually null. And if you look at all this formula, you end up with always very conservative strategies because you assume that everyone should be null, so you have a control dedicated to the case where not, you, you should find nothing in your test. But in the real life, basically, you, you hope that at least M0 is not M. You, you hope there is some small room for some genes to be differentially expressed between the two conditions. So most of the statistical uh, procedure, multiple testing procedure are actually based on this plot here. The idea is that, uh, so if we were able to estimate M0, or not the number of null hypotheses, but the proportion of null hypotheses, we feel that we would improve the, the power of the multiple testing procedure. And most of these procedures are based on, the, on the, this first uh, consideration, which is the following one. Basic property of statistical tests is that under the null hypothesis, the p-value has a uniform distribution between zero and one. And if you're not, your statistical test is not too stupid with respect to the hypothesis you want to test or to the alternative you want to test, you hope that the, the, the p-value associated with the hypothesis that are under the alternative are small. So you, here you actually have a mixture between a uniform distribution and a completely unknown distribution, F, but which is supposed to be concentrated on the left. It's an interesting uh, mixture problem, actually, because it's a mixture where you perfectly know one of the two density. Where you have nothing to estimate for this one, and you completely don't know the other one. There, have been, there, there is also a large literature about this subject. So a first way to estimate this pi zero here is the following. You put some lambda star somewhere. Somewhere means far enough from zero so that you don't think that you have a true, uh, you have a alternate H1 hypothesis on the right. So if your, pivot, you, your threshold is sufficiently high, you won't imagine that you may have a H1 hypothesis that give ra gives rise to some p-value that's bold there. Okay, you, so you put some threshold, you can't count how many points you have there, and it gives you an estimate of pi zero. So it's very naive, but of course, the choice of lambda is a, is a bit crucial because the further on the right, the more sure that you just have H0 hypothesis. But its, it's variance also increases when lambda goes on the right because you have fewer, fewer and fewer data. So you would like to have lambda small, but not too small because you don't want him to enter into the F support. So actually, you can rephrase this problem in terms of histogram selection. Imagine that you consider an histogram selection that has the following shape. You take a regular histogram with a given bin width. You can choose it. So you, choose that. you say that, for example, your histogram will have D bins, and you can make D vary from D min to D max. And then for each of these histogram dimension, you merge all the bins on the right 
so that to make a, one single class. So you have a, a set of regularly spaced bins and then one huge one, which is the one on the right. And this provides you uh, an estimate of uh, pi zero also. So now the, the job is to choose D, lambda, etc., and it's a histogram problem selection, and you can do that minimizing the quadratic loss I've been presenting before, and we know how to compute that very, very fast, so you can choose your lambda very, very fast. So I was, yeah, I was mentioning that when the, you just consider a simple histogram collection, regular histogram or kernel estimate, in the end you always find p hat equals one. Here, you don't always find p hat equals one because now you have a quadratic number of histogram instead of a linear number of histograms in the, in the former example. And in sometimes also, in this kind of multiple testing procedure, people actually end up with this kind of distribution for the p-values. And this is typically the case when you do one-sided tests. Because here you have the guys for which the alternative is on the side you are actually testing. And here are the guys who are departing from the null, but on the other side. And these guys give very, very high p-value. Actually, basically it means that you shouldn't have done this test. You should have done a two-sided test. But sometimes you may end up with this. Or you can also have this kind of problem when your distribution, the null distribution is not the one you believe and you have problem with the tails. So here the priority are not exactly the one you, you want. So if you want to, to uh, your estimate to be robust with, with respect to this kind of departure, you can do exactly the same thing, except that you put two thresholds here, one on the left and on the right. Again, it's an histogram selection procedure. And now you have d to the square, uh, to the square not to the square, d to, to, the, to the tree, uh, a cubic number of histograms. So now the, the collection again increases. And now, it's a bit more fun, that's why I present this result. It turns out that the LP out outperforms leave one out, meaning that P hat is not always one. Sometime, from time to time, quite often in this last situation, P, P hat is not one. And basically what I just wanted to show, this our simulation result to show that uh, this is the, the, you use the LP out procedure to estimate pi zero here, it's a leave one out procedure, so you have a bunch of value for a pi zero, 0.25, et cetera. And the uh, last uh, four rows are, let's say, competing, um, competing method, but the important uh, message is that both LP1 and uh, LP out and leave one out outperform all the other one. And among LP out and leave one out, LP out still outperforms the job. So uh, outperforms uh, the other one. So that's the technique that provides the, the most accurate estimate of the null, of the proportion of null. Um, hypothesis. So just to get this, what you had to do was to do the job to write by hand the final formula you get be, uh, when you do a cross-validation for histogram selection. And I could just go back because I just realized that the, 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 the important element is the following. Here you have a sum over all the possible subsets, and here you have a sum over all possible data. And the trick to get the result is basically to invert these two sums. So you, you have a sum on each data and then a sum over, over all the subsets that contain the data or not. And once you do that, and after several, let's say, hours, days, <laughs> uh, you get it. Okay, so th this was my, my first example. And now I'm gonna turn to, into my second example, which is uh, even more biological, which comes from the detection of uh, genomic alteration. So all my example will come from 
cancer, but uh, you could do the same for uh, other problems, other disease, not only human. And uh, the problem is the following. So uh, as you probably know, we all should have uh, 23 pairs of homologous chromosomes in each of our cells. So this is uh, what you know as a karyotype. So here the, the chromosomes have been colored. You don't really see the color, but the one is in yellow, the second is in dark red, so you don't see it. The third one is in purple, etc. And this is the kind of, kind of karyotype you have in a, in a normal cell. And on the right, I just show uh, you the kind of karyotype you may uh, find in a tumor cell. So you say, see that, for example, you have four copies of chromosome one. You have something like 18 copies. Actually, there is a, it's so messy that the number here are wrong. So you have a, a one, two, three, four, five, six copies of chromosome 19. But if you look carefully, they don't have all the same lengths. It's just because some of them lost some parts, and some of them are not completely green, but there are some blue parts. Blue parts coming, for example, from this chromosome or from this chromosome. Some chromosomes seem to completely vanish, but actually they're completely spread out and connected with other chromosomes. So it's a complete mess, and you may have an idea of why the patient is going bad. Okay, so what, what is the statistical problem behind that? Uh, there, is, there are various technology to, to do that, but basically most of the technology will do the following thing. Comparing a normal cell and a tumor cell, they will estimate for a, a set of locus, a set of position along each chromosome, the ratio of the number of copies in the tumor cell versus the number of copies in the normal cell. So you will use, again, it's microarray or NG, next generation sequencing of whatever you want. You will end up with this kind of profile, where you have a chromosome, the set of position you know, and then the ratio, or at least some signal that should be proportional to the ratio. Of course, you have a lot of noise, and this, these are true data. So it's from the thesis by Philippe Huppé, who is working at the Institut Curie. Here you have, for example, chromosome one, where you miss a huge part on the left. Then you have few yellow points, which means that they are normal. Then you have a huge gain, meaning that all these points, you have too many copies with respect to the normal cell. And again, it's normal, and again, you have a gain. Again, again you have a gain. I mean, uh, um, amplification. Chromosome 2 is about almost okay, 3 is okay, 4 is okay. Chromosome 17, again, you have a, a, the left part, which is normal, and then you have a huge gain on the right. Okay? You don't know where are the parts, or where, when you have additional parts, you don't know if they're connected with the 70, no, chromosome number, number 17, or, or if they, were, they went somewhere else. You don't know that. You just know that the genes that are be, below that are, have a too large number of copies, and this one have a too few number of copies. So in terms of statistics, our job is to be able to uh, find the breakpoints and to decide who is normal, who is uh, in exceedance, and who is uh, not enough. So it's a change point, change point model. So uh, you can imagine the standard, uh, standard modeling. You have K segments. A segment is a set of regions that are successive. I mean, each position must belong to a, to a region. A, seg a segmentation is a set of regions that go from the first point to the last point and why it is a signal at a given position along the, along the genome. And the typical model would be to assume that the data are independent and that the distribution of the data just depends on the, on the segment they belong to. Okay, so YT just depends on the theta R, and R is the number of the segment. So here are the, all the, the first model you can think of, almost elastic Gaussian, heteroselastic Gaussian, Poisson, and every ID you may have. You can follow the list.
So this was also developed uh, by Frank Picard during his PhD. So you, if you want to estimate all these parameters, uh, the parameters here are the theta and the position of the breakpoint, the limit between the segment. Basically, you can do maximum likelihood, so you want to maximize the likelihood. It's easy to do it for the parameter in general, provided you get the segment. The problem is about the segment. You have to find the breakpoint. And it's a difficult optimization problem because you have a choose n minus k possibility to put, uh, choose n minus 1, k minus 1 possibility to put the breakpoints among n, k, break, k minus 1 breakpoint among n data. So you can't do an exhaustive search, and the most standard way to minimize this is to, do, to use dynamic programming. So dynamic programming is a quadratic algorithm, and you can find the optimal solution, which is good. And I'm going to say a few words more about dynamic programming. And the second thing I'd like to mention is that the likelihood here uh, is continuous with respect to theta as a parameter, but it's not continuous with respect to the breakpoint position. So all you know about standard uh, likelihood theory about uh, asymptotic uh, normality, unbiasedness, etc., is not true, does not hold for the position. So the inference of the breakpoint position is difficult. It's difficult to have a confidence interval for the breakpoint, for example. So just one more, one word about dynamic programming. So the idea of dynamic programming is the following. You can calculate the log likelihood, say, for each segment. So you fit the parameter to the data of the segment, and you calculate the so log likelihood of, of all the data of the segment, assuming that they all belong to the same segment. If you had to just find the optimal segmentation in two, what you would do is to try all possible position for the breakpoint and to minimize the sum of the cost of the third segment plus the cost of the second segment. And the nice thing of dynamic programming is that when you want to do that, let's say for three segments, you're going to check where you could put the second breakpoint, and you already have the optimal solution for the first one because you did it at the preceding step. So you have a kind of recursion formula here where uh, to find the optimal segmentation of the endpoint into k breakpoints, you use the optimal segmentation into k minus one segment of all subsegment from one to t, and then you just add the cost of the last segment on the right. So it's a recursion formula. It's quadratic because you need to compute the cost of all segments, and you have a quadratic number of segments. But then you can compute that just it's a k times n complexity. So basically, it's quadratic because the number of segments is quadratic. And the other thing I'd like to show, because it gives an intuition of the trick I'm going to show just after, this recursion formula, if you, just, if you were just thinking about it as a, from a computational point of view, this is a sum, or this is a sum, and these guys are log. So this, this is actually a product. Okay? And this is a mean, but if you replace the mean by a sum, you have something that strongly uh, resembles to a scalar product. So from a computational point of view, doing this has something to do with computing scalar product. And because you do it iteratively for all the possible elements, it sounds like taking the power of some matrices. So that's the linear algebra trick that you can, uh, so please trust me, because <laughs> I'm not going to show you. But if you want to, uh, to compute a formula, a, a function that can be factorized over all segments, if you build a matrix where in, into each element of the matrix you put the cost of the segment, then when to uh, calculate the power of the matrix at degree k, so for k equal 1, 2, 3, etc., to capital K, you cal calculate all the possible value of all possible sum of, of the cost of all your possible segmentation. And so the nice thing to, to see here is that 
to do dynamic programming, you find the optimal segmentation. In some sense, it means, it means that you've, uh, you've been exploring the whole segmentation set. But the whole segmentation set has actually this size. But you don't need to have uh, this complexity to explore all of it. So dynamic programming provides you, in a quadratic time, the optimal uh, path. But you can compute a bunch of other quantity of this shape with exactly the same complexity. So when you use that, if you say, go for example to, you know, into a Bayesian framework, you can do the following thing. So it's standard Bayesian. Let's say, let's say you have some prior on the dimension. And if you don't know how to choose a prior, you just ask Jean-Michel, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know how to choose a prior. It's flat and that's it. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can then have, you need some prior on the, on the segmentation, so you can give the prior distribution on the segmentation given the dimension, or you can directly put some distribution on the segmentation for all the dimension at the same time. So this one is uniform within each di dimension. This one is a bit more funny. It's, it, it, it prefers a segmentation where the segments have the homogeneous lengths. So I like this one, and I'll show you why. You, it's just because it's, it's, you can factorize it over the segment, so it's going to work well with the following. And then the, the, the prior distribution of the parameter given the segmentation. And then I just need two hypotheses. I need the prior distribution of the, of the segment to be factorized over the segment. And then the same, I need factorization hypothesis about all possible probability. I need the, to be able to split the thing into my computation. And you see why, I mean, I have elements, I have all information segments by segment. I can't afford to have a parameter that deals with two different segments, for example, because otherwise the computation will be wrong. So for example, I can't deal with a nomostatistic model because sigma would be the same for everyone and I can't achieve the inference like that. So it needs to be heterostatistic or Poisson because you just have one parameter. So all this sum, if you have this hypothesis, all this sum will have a nice form and will be able to use it using the linear algebra trick I just mentioned. And then I will need to compute this kind of quantity. So it's desirable to use conjugate priors because these integrals are easy to com compute. If you don't, actually, you can do one Monte Carlo algorithm per segment, which will be quadratic time. And then you have it, and you keep it, and that's it. So I can't negotiate the first hypothesis, but I could do something about the second one. It's just a matter of time. So you can't, uh, you can't uh, avoid the first one. So once you do that, and using the kind of, uh, using the trick I, I was just mentioning before, you can calculate a, a bunch of quantities that are most often quite difficult to calculate. For example, you can calculate the probability that there is a breakpoint at some position. Because you can calculate the probability that breakpoint number k is at position t, and then you sum up over all possible number of breakpoints, and you calculate the probability that there is a breakpoint there. Which is not exactly the same as providing a confidence interval, because you have the distribution of the breakpoint, not a, not, not a distribution about the uncertainty of that, the localization at t. It's not exactly the same. But it's still information. You can also compute the probability for a segment to be there. Meaning that I'm sure that here it's all normal. I don't really know what happens on the left. I don't really know what happened on the right. But I'm sure that here everything is OK. That, that's an information also. And the last quantity uh, I will come back on uh, later is the entropy. So you can compute the, posterior the, the, the entropy of the posterior distribution of all, of all the segments, the possible segmentation, given the data within a dimension. The idea is the following. The entropy measures the fact that the posterior distribution is concentrated on few segmentation. 
Basically, when you choose your segmentation, you would like it to be quite sure, not too fuzzy about the position of the breakpoint. So intuitively, when you choose dimension, you would desire this to be small so that you're quite sure of the localization of your breakpoints. Actually, there was a paper by Yann Guédon two years ago, which basically used the same tricks, but it was in the HMM context, and he needed to have the parameters. So here we integrate the parameters. So if the inference is integrated in, in the computation, we don't need to know the parameters. So he had to first fit the parameter, and then he was able to cal calculate similar quantities here. So just an, illust an illustration. So this is a, what we call a CGH profile. So CGH is for comparative genomic hybridization. So it's the kind of data I was first showing. So this is the ratio here. So here you have a kind of large segment. And then the optimal segmentation into three segments puts a breakpoint there because you have a kind of, kind of shift from there to there. And then a second breakpoint from there to there. And you see that it misses this point. If you go to four segments, you get a, no, a long segment here, then a small deletion here, and again, probably a norm, another normal segment, and then a long deletion. Okay, so I will discuss the choice between three and four after, but just I want to show the kind of quantity we can compute. Here you can, here in black, it's a distribution of the position of the first segment, of the first breakpoint, and here in the distribution of the position of the second breakpoint. And you see that this distribution is quite fuzzy. You don't really know where is the first breakpoint, actually. And it could be from here to here. If you take this segmentation, so here it's the best segmentation. Here it's an integration of all possible segmentation. Okay? So here it's just basic dynamic programming. Here it's the sum of all possible segments. And here you get a much more uh, thin peak for the position of the first breakpoint, the second breakpoint, and the distribution of the third one is in green, so I'm sure you can't see it. But trust me, it's very, very thin around this position here. So you maybe at the first row you can see it. Okay, and then the ki last kind of element we have, so this is a 3D plot because it's a priority for a segment to exist. So it has two coordinates, the starting point and the end point, and then it's priority. And here you see that for I have four segments, so I have four clear peaks, and with three segments, I have quite clear peak here, but here it's completely messy, you can hardly see it. So you don't really know where is the second segment, and you don't really know where is, where is the first segment, just because the localization of this breakpoint. So of course, as often, the choosing uh, the number of breakpoints is actually a difficult problem, because once you get it, you will, uh, using dynamic programming, find a find the optimal solution. You won't have precision about the localization, but at least you will have the optimal segmentation. So of course, you end up with a model selection problem. So uh, again, uh, choosing the number of segments in a breakpoint detection problem is a, an old problem. Basically, uh, people do use a penalized contrast, so log, you take the log likelihood of your model and you penalize it in some way, and most of them uh, use a two-step strategy. So the first one is the following for each dimension. So for us, it's each number of segments. You fit the best segmentation. So you use a dynamic programming number one. And then you get, you get, uh, you get some, uh, the log likelihood of your optimal segmentation with a given dimension. And then to choose the best dimension, you take, so you penalize the likely, log likelihood of the best segmentation with some quantity that depends on k. Okay. And then I have two examples, but probably you could find, uh, find others. So the first one by uh, Emilio Barbier was to, to make it depend on the dimension uh, of the number of possible segmentation with k segment. Uh, Marc Laviel proposed to do it proportionally to the number of segments, but with an adaptive uh, coefficient. 
Something which is uh, interesting is that the penalty within each dimension is the same. So each segmentation with same dimension pays the same price in terms of penalty. You may think that very irregular uh, segmentation are not good and you would prefer regular segmentation. If you, if, you, if you have this kind of ID, you can't use this kind of strategy because the penalty here only depends on K. Okay, and the way you choose your best model within a given segmentation doesn't depend on the penalty actually. You, you could already take, if this, was, if this was dependent on the segmentation, the optimal segmentation within each dimension could also depend on the penalty. So, uh, Another very, very fam famous criterion uh, in model selection in general is BIC. So BIC is basically the posterior, the posterior probability of the, the conditional probability of the model given the data. And the most popular uh, BIC uh, criterion is, uh, is this one, which is based on the Laplace approximation. So you end up with the log likelihood of the data minus half of, the, of log n the number of data times the number of parameters. In this, in this setting, uh, the, the Laplace approximation is completely wrong. You can't do that because uh, the, the model on which you, uh, the linear space on which you, you project when you do segmentation has, is very, very irregular. You no, no regularity condition that are assumed in the, in the Laplace approximation are fulfilled, so you can't do that. It's completely wrong. And there is a, a recent paper by uh, Nancy Zhang and, uh, and Sigmund in 2007 where the modified the approximation, so they did the job of the Laplace approximation, but with this very, very, taking into account the fact that this, the model collection is very, very rough. So it's a very, very different uh, technique based on Brownian bridge approximation, etc. So, uh, actually, if you are able to, to visit all the possible segmentation, as, long as, as soon as you want to, to calculate some quantity which is a global probability of some dimension. You just have to sum up over all the segmentation with this dimension. And if you do that, you don't need to do any approximation. You just do the sum and that's it. So you can actually calculate directly that. You can calculate the joint probability of uh, the data and the, and the dimension. And if you want the conditional distribution of P given Y, you just have normalized to take the prior into account. But basically, you've, did the job. you've done the job. And you can also do something more, which is rarely done in the, in the literature about that, is directly to calculate uh, the posterior probability of the one segmentation given the data. So you don't choose the dimension, you don't optimize the segmentation within, the, within a dimension, and then you choose a dimension. You directly choose the best penalized uh, segmentation. Of course, you need to calculate the normalizing constant, but it has a good shape. Again, it's a sum of all the possible segmentation, and you know how to compute that. And one last term, uh, one last uh, criterion, which is probably less popular than the preceding one, but actually we like it, like it a lot. It was pro first proposed by uh, Christophe Bernacchi and uh, other people that are here in this room. And the idea was to add uh, the entropy term to the BIC criterion, saying that when you use a model selection, in many situations, when you have some uh, underlying variable, latent variable, and in this case it was for mixture, you would like to, the prediction of the underlying variable to be quite sure. So you want the posterior distribution of the unknown variable to be quite sharp, so you would like his entropy to be small. So you add it as an entropy, so you, so you add an entropy ter term on the choice uh, to, to, to make your model selection. In terms of segmentation, you could, say, you could say that the segmentation is also an unknown variable, a kind of later, latent variable, and you would like its posterior distribution to be quite sharp around 
about, let's say, one or two solutions, but not much. It's, if it's too messy, if it's too uh, uh, spread all over the place, you won't be happy with that. So you, you could think that you can exactly copy the ICR criterion, which is the, BI, the exact BIC criterion plus the exact entropy. So I, I call it a BIC, although it's not an approximation. Uh, it, it's, you allow me to do that? <laughs> okay. So it's easy to derive the ICL criterion. So uh, some simulations. So we did, uh, so it was Poisson because Poisson has just one parameter, so it was easy. 100 data, you have five segments, and one segment has uh, Poisson intensity one, and the next segment has Poisson intensity uh, lambda, uh, one plus lambda. So you go from zero to 10. So it means that you have one segment at one, one segment at 11, one segment at one, one segment at 11. And then you go from one and one to one and 11. So here the problem is easy. Here the problem is uh, difficult. The nice thing, uh, so you just, uh, we just ran a, a lot of simulation and we computed the number of times each of the criterion here found a good number, which is five. So here you use BIC on the whole dimension. Here you use BIC on each segmentation and you look at the dimension of the segmentation and you look if it's five or not. And here you ICL on the whole dimension, which you only defined within dimension. The strange thing is that the BIC for the, segment, for the dimension is completely wrong. It very, the penalty is much too weak and it always selects much larger dimension than it should. All those calculations are exact. I mean, it's not a matter of Laplace being not valid, et cetera, because the computation is exact. It's really that probably it's not a good criterion at all. Uh, here, and here, if you com compare the posterior probability of a segmentation given the data or the ICL, which is this plus the entropy term, it turns out that ICL, the ICL criterion outperforms the BIC criterion. But re remind that they are not defined on the same quantity. ICL is dedicated to a dimension. This BIC is dedicated to, um, to, just one, uh, to just one segmentation. So just an example to show, uh, going back to the example I, I presented before. <coughs> uh, so this, is, this was, a, the, the, it's another example actually, it's not the same one. Here you, you, you can see that ICL is going to cho choose four and BIC is going to cho choose three. The peak of the BIC, is, uh, as you see, it's very, very flat. So between three and four, it's not that easy to choose, I mean. You see that the penalty for the BIC for the dimension is too weak and it goes up to 10. Whereas here BIC choose three and ICL chooses four. And you see that the penalty of ICL is much stronger. So the entropy goes very, very fast up as soon as you passed the true dimension. The idea is the following. As soon as you've reached the right, the right segmentation and you increase the dimension, you, you will sub-segment the true segmentation and all the sub-segmentation of the right one will have very, very similar posterior probability. So you end up with a very, very large entropy. And ICL penalized for that. It tells you, okay, you're starting to sub-segment. It's useless because it's equivalent. So my posterior distribution is going to be completely flat in a certain region, so don't go, don't go there. Okay, and it's also surprising that although it's an additional penalty term, you end up with a larger dimension. <laughs> because between these two points, it's not that easy, and the entropy term, it's not always going the same way, but in the long term, the penalty is much, is heavier. 
Okay, so, uh, well, I had some comments, but uh, I'm not sure it's very, very interesting. The, the nice thing was that in the exact, uh, in the approximate, uh, in the Laplace approximation, which was not Laplace, in the BIC criterion developed by uh, Zeng and Zygmunt, they had, they had this kind of penalty. And if you look at this kind of penalty, it's exactly consistent with the prior I was mentioning when you say that the prior is uh, related to the product of the length so that it favors a regularly spaced uh, segmentation. Okay, so uh, I tried to draw uh, some conclusion and the conclusion was the following. My opinion is that in some situation it's worth to tackle the combinatorial problem because if you're able to deal with it, you will have a kind of exact quantity which is nice and which is nice in place of approximation. So you, you, we know how to compute a lot of approximation, but in some time you can get the exact quantity. What is not that easy for a statistician, at least to me, is to be able to identify the problem where you, be, you will be able to do the job. And that's probably a good point to speak with combinatorists or computer scientists because they're the people who know which kind of combinatorial problem looks like something you will be able to solve and which one is known to be out of reach. And so, because before you start to do the computation, you need to have a hope that in the end you will get the results, otherwise you shouldn't do that. And another comment uh, about a quite a newer problem uh, in biomolecular. So biomolecular biology is always a very fascinating domain because you have tens of new problems every year, so you, you will have, always have this kind of combinatorial problem. And in terms of combinatorics, uh, networks, graphs, is a very, very old object for a combinatorist and probabilist, etc. And now it turns out that biologists are more and more interested in uh, the analysis of networks. So networks is a set which, which des describes uh, the interaction of, uh, with a bunch of uh, objects, proteins, genes, individual, whatever you want. And it turns out that motifs, so triangle, cliques, loops, etc. So sm small patterns that you may see in the network are kind of basic ingredient to describe a whole network. They were used to do that with the DNA segment where, where they were looking for pattern also. So how many CCCAG do I have in my genome? How many C, how many AG, how many? So they were used to characterize the DNA sequences like that and then tend now to describe network with this kind of pattern. What can we do, can we say about all these patterns into, uh, in this motif? Can, can we count them? It's already a difficult problem in a network because the, the complexity of the problem is, is not that, that easy. What is the distribution? We have, you have a huge uh, literature about the number of triangles in the Erdos-Renyi uh, random graph model, but Erdos-Renyi is uh, basically stupid for uh, biology. Yesterday we had, uh, we had talks about uh, uh, mixed mem mem membership, uh, stochastic block models, etc. What is the distribution of the number of loops in the stochastic block model? That would be an interesting. That's an interesting question. And how does the topology of the motif influence of that? Of course, if you take into account the topology of the motif, probably you will be able to count it faster. And it's already true for oligonucleotide in, in sequences. It's faster to count rounds than to count uh, heterogeneous patterns, for example. So th that's an another example of new problem. Uh, we can try to tackle. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stefan.
Yeah, Yajina. Just a remark about uh, what you call exact BIC. If I understand well, I, I think it is the logarithm of the integrate uh, likelihood. That motion, Jean-Michel Marin? Yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. So yes. You can yes. go back to the conditional distribution, conditional probability of the model given the data for free once you get that. So it's not asymptotic. No, it's not asymptotic. It's, it's exact. It's exactly. The All what I presented okay. today was exact. That's right. Yes. Yes, that, that's why I find strange that uh, this guy works so bad because it's not a matter of being a bad approximation because the cal calculation is exact. So the problem is somewhere else. So you, you start with a Bayesian paradigm and then you, in order to do model shows, you seem to left the Bayesian paradigm away and you go back to the Bayesian paradigm by saying, okay, I take an exact BIC. But the exact BIC is just the integrated likelihood. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So this is one, one way of, one Bayesian way for choosing a model. But if you want to do a Bayesian choice, you have also to define proba uh, probability in the space of models. Yes. Okay? Yes, I didn't so, mention that. So, so probably that uh, what you call the exact ICL can be interpreted uh, uh, as a, a real Bayesian things if you consider that uh, the entropy is a prior distribution in the space of model. So what happened here, I, in my uh, opinion, with respect... It's, it's not prior because it's conditional on the data. The entropy we compute is conditional. It's a sort of empirical bars by... Okay. Empirical okay. bias prior. <laughs> you can try to adopt that. But... Uh, the behavior of this exact BIC here ju just says that uh, uh, you, you cannot take a uniform prior uh, with respect to the, to the number of uh, breakpoints. You have to specify a, a prior that penalize the, the big number of breakpoints or to, to find a, a clever prior distribution yes, but with actually respect to that. I have no information about that. Uh, it's not that easy to know how many breakpoints. You have no, not much prior, prior information. But pro, I, I agree with that. Here the, prior, here, sorry. here, the prior is uniform. So, of course, maybe we should penalize. You're right. You can also change the, the yes. You, uh, we also consider other prior, where you put a prior which depends on the product on the length. And it, it does not uh, help this guy that much, actually. It's really a matter. I really think that in this situation, what you want is the best segmentation. And actually, uh, the detour by the dimension of the model is really a detour. You don't really care. You just want the best segmentation among all possible segmentation. Going through K actually is not that abuse. You're interested in M, so go directly to M. <laughs> that's, that's the way I understand the, the problem. And when you do that, you don't really face the problem of the dimension of the model because you just compare uh, segmentation with each other. And this is the reason why it's, it's not, uh, it's impossible to, to let a uniform prior distribution for each value of k, because that corresponds to a, a lot okay, of okay, different sub-situation. Okay, so, so you uh, we still have... Uh, you you have to analyze parameter. all the, all the, the okay. situations that correspond to each value of k in order to, to define a prior in the space of model. Okay. And this is probably related to the entropy or something like that. Uh, yes, but you, you don't know in advance. No, 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 I agree. I agree. 